I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Hitting the Bullseye with Banded Fertilizer Applications, is being brought to you by Topcon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know, and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series, Agronomy Matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, growing up on a dairy farm in northwestern Wisconsin, strip tiller Tristan Beyer grew accustomed to dealing with cool, wet soil conditions. But these conditions tend to elicit the best responses from nutrient applications, even in situations where soil tests may not recommend additional fertilizer. Having recently earned his PhD in crop physiology from the University of Illinois, working under the tutelage of Dr. Fred Bilo, Tristan has studied phosphorus and nitrogen management, with an emphasis on the interactions between phosphorus placement, rate, source, and timing in corn and soybeans within different tillage systems. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Topcon Agriculture, Tristan shares research results of comparative fertilizer trials to include banded versus broadcast applications, analysis of proximity of fertilizer placement in a strip-till berm, and its impact on yield and some simple yet effective fertilization improvement strategies strip-tillers can consider to increase plant uptake. I hail from Wisconsin, northwestern Wisconsin, north of Eau Claire, and I say where I come from, I'm on the edge of the timber line, basically, and it's only only woods north of me. You know, why or how did I end up down in Illinois? Well, when I when I got done with my bachelor's from Wisconsin River Falls, I wanted to say, well, go on for a master's, where shall I go? And I was really interested in corn and soybean production. I had, you know, I grew up on a small dairy and crop farm, and I figured if I wanted to learn more about corn and soybeans, what better a place to go than the center of the Corn Belt? So I, I venture down down to the center of Illinois, the heart of the I states, and I meet up with my advisor, Dr. Fred Bilo, and I really liked the the concepts and the research that he had conducted with the numerous industries and partners that he uh, worked with. So I guess even though I'm a crop physiologist by nature, I'll say our program focuses on high yield production systems and uh, looks at different management inputs that we can do to try to achieve higher yields. Today I'm going to be talking to you about uh, hitting a bullseye with banded fertilizer applications. Part of my master's and PhD work has uh, revolved around how can we better fertilize, what technologies do we have available to us, and how can we better make use of the fertilizer technologies that we have. So I mentioned that uh, I I come from Illinois. I look across you know, the United States, and right now we find, find ourselves in, in eastern, you know, Nebraska. Illinois, from a, from a soil standpoint, isn't that much different. It is a mollusol. It's to come from the prairie soils. There is a lot of differences between your, you know, your textures. 
But you know, from central Illinois, the dark green, a lot of these darker mollusols, compared to the, the lighter greens or alpha sols, your forest uh, soils, there's a lot of similarity across much of the corn belt. We all know that on our own farms, the soil textures and types do change quite a bit, but concepts still apply. Throughout Illinois, we cover four main primary areas uh, throughout the state. It's a very long state, north to south, and they range from high productivity, you know, five or six percent organic matter in the north, down to some topsoil somewhere down in the southern uh, Harrisburg type of area. When we look at our, our crop production systems across the state and within our lab, we strive for yield. You know, we look at the individual management inputs, what, how much can we affect yield, the biology behind it, and then I guess I'll show you what does that management input actually result for a yield change, and we can decide, you know, does it actually pay based on each of your individual, uh, you know, economic analysis that you might have. So coming from a research institution, I wanted to start by asking a question. And some of you, several of you might know the, the answer to this, but what is the world record corn yield and what is the corn yield gap? What's the world record corn yield? Anybody know? 500? It's over 500. 530? 532. That's about as close as you can get. It's 532.0271 bushels per acre. I don't know if these guys learned the scientific digit rule, but 0271, 10 thousandths of a bushel, that's only a couple kernels per acre. Corn, the National Corn Growers Contest is a pretty competitive competition if they're measuring it out to, you know, 10 thousandths of a bushel. It's pretty damn close to 532 bushels, if you ask me. But, uh, needless to say, the world record is, it's very high. This was set back in 2015. Uh, today, the average yield is 175 bushels per acre. Uh, crossed, you know, the Corn Belt. I'm sure it's going to be a little bit lower than that, even though prices don't reflect it this year. So 175 bushels, the opportunity is uh, upwards to 532. There's a large discrepancy of the yield opportunity that we can have and still be gained. When we talked to the yield contest winners of what this actually yielded, they said they saw over 630 bushels per acre on their yield monitor when they're harvesting that, you know, 11 bushel or 11 acre uh, uh, test plots. So what do all these national corn con contest winners have in common? Well, uh, all of them exceeded 300 bushels per acre, All of, uh, five of them exceeded 400, and two of them exceeded 500 bushels per acre this, this last year. And most of them would you know, probably say that they're taking approaches to better management, to feed the higher plant populations that have better genetics, and making sure that the crop is never stressed. You know, making sure that the crop is never stressed is you know, one way to make sure that the you know, corn can take advantage of its full yield potential. So I wanted to ask another question. I don't know if anyone been here for farming over the 50 years, not to date anybody. 50 years, so in the late 60s. How about about 40 years? Okay, a couple guys in the 40s. What corn management factors changed the most in the last you know, 40 or 50 years? And there's several factors that have changed quite a bit, but population is one that stands out to me. What plant population were we planting maybe 40 or 50 years ago? 15,000? Pretty darn close to the, you know, the national average. Plant populations changed dramatically. If we look at the, the yields and how they've changed over the past two years and what the plant populations have done, they merely uh, mimic each other. We show you here the grain yield, which is in orange, a lionite orange, by the way, and uh, how it varies uh, based on every year's 
uh, individual yield. And it uh, varies based on that year's weather. However, plant population, which we superimposed upon it with this blue line, is fairly steady. It's steady because as producers, we have to plant the plants before we you know what that know what that year's yield is going to be, and uh, it's trended upwards. You know, back in the 1960s, 70s, our average yield was only you know around 60 bushels per acre. You know, now we're closer to you know 175. But our plant population went from about 15, 16,000 up to now around 32,000 plants per acre. Why has this changed so dramatically for us to increase yield? Well. Uh, it's a simple component of a uh, yield algorithm, how we calculate yield. You know, plant population is a vital component. Plants per acre multiplied by your kernels per plant multiplied by your uh, weight per kernel. All components that make the yield. Of these three different factors, the one that's in the most of our control is this plants per acre. If we don't put the plants out there, you know, the rest comes into play from the environment standpoint of whether we can get the kernels per plant, the weight per kernel, and depending on our management in general. As we look down the road, you know, if we look back at our, our figure here, you know, we're at about 32,000 plants per acre now. You know, there, I'm sure there's several growers that are exceeding that. We found in some of our research that in 30-inch row settings, once we're about 38,000 plants per acre, that's as high as we could probably comfortably go in a 30-inch row, even though there's definitely situations where you can see greater yields from you know, higher plant populations beyond that. Our management has changed quite dr drastically compared to what you know, probably was done here, wider row systems, lower plant densities. So as we increase this plant density, what happens to the size of the root system as we increase this plant population? Does it stay the same size? Does it increase? Does it get smaller? Smaller. Anyone that's had the opportunity to dig roots uh, could tell you that it gets smaller. And boy, in the crop physiology lab, we love to dig roots. We dig a lot of them. So here I show you two plant, different plant densities, 32,000 plants per acre versus 45,000 plants per acre. Uh, granted, uh, 45,000 might be high for you know, several people, but as we increase the plant density, the roots get smaller. Now, it's not a surprise to most of us that if we think about the role of roots, you know, one of its main functions is you know, feeding the plant. How do we get more nutrition into them? As we increase our plant densities, it becomes more challenging to get you know, enough adequate nutrients through the different mechanisms of how we can fertilize a crop you know, into this smaller root system, which we're ultimately hoping is gonna be putting on a bigger ear at the end of the year. A smaller root's not always a bad thing. So if you think of it from a plant physiological aspect, a plant has to, it takes up it has energy and it has to do one or two things with that energy. It's only allocated so much you know, from you know, photosynthesis, etc. It can either grow above ground plant parts or it can grow below ground. If it has to exert additional energy to grow below ground roots that it might not otherwise have to if it was in a good growing environment, it would then sacrifice that energy that it could be instead making into yield. You know, smaller roots are not bad as long as you're in non-stressed situations. If you're going to encounter stresses, water deficiencies, or somewhere else, that's where a larger root system can become more beneficial. So uh, just a couple things that you need to think about for managing you know, root, pop, uh, root systems. When we look down the road, I showed you how much uh, the plant density has changed, the root systems changed. Do you think it has any dynamics on uh, how we fertilize? If we think about our soil tests, where they're at today, when were soil tests last calibrated to most of the corn yields that we're seeing today. 
I heard the number actually once in one of the other presentations today. For the most part, it was in, a, in the 60s and early 70s was when a lot of the main correlations were done for the soil test values that we, we use. You know, some of the original concepts of like the Bray soil test, which were developed in the 30s and in a lot of areas are still used uh, today. They've gone through, through some tweaks and you know, minor revisions. You know, there's been a lot of management changes that have happened since we've last calibrated them. You know, just look at the, the yield levels that we've experienced when they were calibrated to where we're at now. Makes, makes us uh, question ourselves, you know, do the soil tests you know, fully predict the yield that we are hoping to see with our modern genetics, narrower rows, higher planting densities, you know, extra foliar protections, etc. And uh, you know, do we need to fertilize a little differently? So if, uh, if, if on my own farm or if a grower comes up and asks me, you know, what do you do with your fertility management program? Where, where do I start if I want to reevaluate what, what do I need? You know, which nutrients should I be applying, et cetera? I like to start with trying to understand what does the crop require that, uh, from a nutrient standpoint? And I'll, and I'll look at corn to start with. Here, uh, we have the six different favorite nutrients for uh, corn. I have a 230 bushel corn crop. So if you grow greater than 230 bushels, you could probably elevate these levels to your respective yield level. This is averaged over a couple different years from uh, some research that we've done across Illinois and, and published. Of these uh, six different nutrients, NPK, sulfur, zinc, and boron, I have three different columns. The first is the amount that's required to produce. That's the total amount of above ground biomass that the plant's gonna need to take up and feed the crop. The second is the amount of nutrients removed with the grain. I like to think of that as if I'm a grain farmer and if I'm harvesting my, my corn crop, go through and I take the grain off. At the end of the season, when I ship it to the elevator and it leaves my farm, that's the amount of nutrients that I'm being pulled down uh, every single year. If you're a silage or a dairy farmer or something else that's taking silage, you might be closer to the total amount required to produce. The third column is a harvest index. And if, uh, if you're any good at uh, math, it's basically a fancy way of saying what proportion of the amount of grain or nutrients were taken up in the grain compared to that that was total required for the crop. And the reason that harvest index is important is from a plant standpoint, the plant's final goal is to make grain, make future progeny you know, for the next generation. So if I'm a plant, I want to exert the nutrients to my grain that are going to be most important for survival or for making grain. Hence why nutrients that have high harvest indexes are ones to make sure that are not limited or are available to the crop later in the season. Now of these nutrients, there's three different criteria of what I would consider that make a nutrient important for uh, uptake and or requirement. The first requirement or aspect would be uh, something that makes the nutrient have a unique uptake pattern. One example of that would be boron. Boron is, uh, has a steep uptake curve right prior to pa uh, tasseling and is needed for uh, boron and uh, pollina pollination and uh, pollen formation for making yield. The second criteria would be nutrients that are needed in large quantities. And uh, this is often ones that we focus a fair amount, be nitrogen and potassium. We notice that in the amount that's required to produce, both of these have you know, nearly you know, 260 or 180 pounds per acre that are required to make 
you know, a 230 bushel corn crop. But say the third criteria of an important nutrient would be those that have high harvest indexes. I point here, you know, four, four of the nutrients, both nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, sulfur and zinc all have harvest indexes of over 50%. So over half of the nutrients that are taken up by the crop are put into the grain and thus are remo removed from the field uh, and thus, you know, theoretically pulling down those nutrients to a larger extent in the soils every single year. All these nutrients, phosphorus, I wanted to point out, has one of the highest harvest indexes. 80% of the nutrient that it takes up is put in the grain and is going to be removed at the end of the year. There's also several other considerations that we need to take into account when managing fertilizers. Aside from knowing what needs to be taken up, there's several interactions that take place throughout the growing season. If we're going to hit our bullseye at the end of the season, we might need to not only take into account the fertilizer source and or the rate that is accumulated, what soils are we on, when are we applying it, fall versus spring, are we doing it you know, biannual or every single year? You know, the weather is a huge dynamic role in what, what it, impact are we going to be. Are we wet? Are we dry? Is it cold? Is it wet or hot? Equipment technology, I know I was having a couple of people questions on, uh, you know, how accurate do we need to be placing our fertilizer? I'll address on this uh, a little bit. You know, nutrient placement, I'll talk about banded versus broadcast. You know, what our yield goals are. Uh, I know in some of the presentations uh, earlier, they might have said the soil test values might change based on your yield goal at the end of the year. And that really goes into, you know, what our natural fertility level is going to be. As a grower, as a you know, crop physiologist, these are all kind of considerations that I'm taking into an effort to hopefully make increased yield at the end of the year and hit it on the bullseye. We'll get back to Tristan's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast series possible. Agronomy matters, and Topcon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, Tristan discussed three criteria that make a nutrient important for uptake. The first being something that makes the nutrient have a unique uptake pattern, such as boron and pollination. The second criteria is nutrients that are needed in large quantities, such as nitrogen and potassium. Tristan notes that quantities of both have nearly 260 or 180 pounds per acre that are required to make a 230 bushel corn crop. The third criteria is those that have high harvest indexes. An example he offered was nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, and zinc, all of which have harvest indexes over 50%, meaning that over half of the nutrients taken up by the crop are put into the grain and thus removed from the field. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Tristan Beyer on understanding how different depths of nutrient placement with tillage affects uptake. So uh, another aspect I wanted to point out uh, is you know, trying to understand where those nutrients are in the soil profile. When we look at our banded fertilizer applications, I'm looking at trying to get my nutrients down to about a four to six inch depth in my system. And I know some guys are going deeper with a knife, which actually concentrates them lower. 
It's, in, it's important to understand how the different tillage or strip till bars, uh, which influence it has on getting the nutrients where you think it's actually going in the soil profile. There's uh, numerous studies out there that shows how tillage affects nutrient stratification or, or you know, layering of the nutrients within the soil profile. Here I have an example where I have uh, four different tillage situations. You know, you can think of, you know, strip till somewhere in between probably your mower plow and chisel plow when you're looking at where it's actually putting the knife down through here. We had the different depths and then the soil test level. We'll look at uh, no-till first. We'll use no-till as a standard. So no-till situations, it basically builds your soil fertility on your upper profile. So we're up here, we're at 70 ppm on the surface, couple of inches. But then when you see it down deeper in the soil profile, past you know your six to 12 inch depth, you're all the way down into the 10 to 15 ppm. If you think of your thresholds of what might be adequate, optimum, high, you know, et cetera, if you take your, your shallow soil probe, you say, I don't need any nutrients on the top. However, down at your deeper depths, you do potentially or could respond from additional fertility. If you take the same amount of fertility and you were to uh, do a disc application, disking the soil really does not move that those nutrients down deeper. And even a chisel plow that you know, I grew up with a chisel plow and it's you know fairly aggressive, it does start to move the nutrients down a little bit deeper. You'll see a lowering of your upper soil profile nutrient level, and instead it starts to raise your uh, your subsoil nutrients to some extent. And then I guess your extreme is if you totally flip that soil profile over and look at a moldboard plow, you know, you're basically, you know, thoroughly mixing those nutrients throughout. You know, having an understanding how each of those practices might be different based on, you know, coulter or knife type setups or how far you're actually putting down your nutrients. It's difficult for tillage in and of itself to move nutrients unless you're placing them where you actually want them on target. Now another question, another aspect I wanted to show was some, some research, and it was actually shown to you by Dr. Mengel as well, of the three different soil types, and when I say that, sometimes banded fertility does, does not always respond much differently than that, a broadcast fertility. There can be reasons why. So he showed it over, over three different sites, but you look at the Zane, Zaneville, Elliott, or Muscatine soils, three different soils across Illinois. This was published back in the 19, uh, 60s, and we looked at either banded or broadcast applications. So on the bottom down here, you'll see either 100% uh, broadcast or 100% banded for each of these different soil types. Okay, and often what we'll see is if we look at the far right, comparing the banded to that of the broadcast, is we we obviously see a rate increase, and as we increase the rate, we see a, a yield response. However, if you compare just you know one value to the other value, the banded responses aren't always a lot higher than that of broadcast. They're usually a slightly better, you know, depending on the different soil tests. You know, the Elliott one responded quite well. Once you increase your fertility rate, you know, to a certain extent, in this case it was around 80 pounds of P2O5, your best yields came in when you had a combination of broadcast and banded. The reason why that potentially can be beneficial is as roots grow, most of the nutrients that it takes up is at the root tips or at the root you know, edges, which are most active within the soil for taking up nutrients. When you first start, and most of your uh, roots are within that soil 
uh, or within that banded area, you're going to have an, a lot of nutrient exchange and your plants are going to respond very well to those. However, I'm assuming that once your roots get outside of that band, they still need an ample source of nutrients to continue to feed, feed them if they do grow out. You're going to have, you know, some, some feeding or some uh, supplementation from the roots that still remain in that band. However, uh, they're not the most active root uh, measurements. Hence why having your soil test built up to certain thresholds or a combination of banded and broadcast once you get up to a certain phosphorus rate uh, can be beneficial for the crop. In summary on, on this, you know, banded fertility can increase yield over the broadcast applications depending on the certain soil types. You know, however, as you increase your P rates, you know, a combination of the banded and the broadcast you know, might be best together. If we look at these different uh, P rates, they're similar to some of the phosphorus rate titrations that we've done uh, in across Illinois. I show you here uh, you know, a four-rate titration curve that's very typical when we're applying our microessentials product, and we'll see that once we get up to a certain threshold, and, and I've had multiple years of research on this, and usually it's around 100 pounds of P2O5, we start plateauing. On average, if I were to say most of these soil test values are around uh, 30 ppm uh, malic threes. Just something to, to take into account and consider. Now, if I look you know, down the road, I start to wonder how we're going to advance our, our production practices. You know, how do I test and how do I you know, manage my fertility in these questions? And I, and I come back to you know, soil testing. How well am I going to be able to predict the yield responses that I have? So in Illinois, uh, I often ask, you know, is the soil phosphorus test adequately calibrated for corn and soybean yields? When I'm banding my premium phosphorus microessentials fertilizer in the spring, directly underneath the row, I have multiple years of research where I can look at this. Uh, for corn, for example, I have you know, 22 different evaluations across four different sites throughout the state. In all these trials, I'm looking at banding 250 pounds of product, or it's 100 pounds of P205 across multiple germplasms and 30-inch rows. And in all these cases, I will. Uh, take a soil test directly prior to planting and compare that to the unfertilized plots within each of the respective treatments. Now, when I do this, like some of the other photographs I've shown you, I can basically always get the crop off to a great start. This is important because it's setting the trajectory for higher yield. You know, those crops at the young growth stage is determining the number of ovules around. It needs to have and be in a good growth environment to you know, set the trajectory to go up. Now, I wanted to start by looking at the difference between these two products, but starting with these plants on the left. If you're out in your field, and again, these are in conventional tilled systems, you know, this crop wouldn't look bad out there. It's just that the one you know, right next to it, the next row over that received the fertility, you know, looks that much better. If I look at the soil test values of you know, this plot right here, the one that did not receive any fertility, how well does the soil test predict the yield of what this is going to apply, or what the yields of this is going to be. So if you tell me the soil test value on your particular field, how well do you think I or yourself would do at predicting what the yield is going to be at the end of the year? The answer is it's, it's pretty challenging. Here I can show you the basically of all our plots, the soil test values compared to the yield when we don't fertilize. Long story short, there's not going to be a very good correlation. You know, some people say is the soil test is you know, the Bible and it means everything make all of our management choices based off of that. It's just one 
available tool to us and a, and a host of all other tools. The reason that it doesn't do a very good job is it's common knowledge to all of us that there's so many other management factors and environmental effects that go into making our final yield. The weather that we experience, whether you're uh, putting additional nutrients on, the tillage, uh, tillage that you're maybe performing, the crop rotations, etc., that go into affecting what the final yield's going to be. If I go back and look at the, you know, the early season growth response that we saw here, what is the actual difference in yield from a plants that look like this compares to the ones that look like this? Well, over the uh, 22 different sites uh, that we conducted this trial, we can plot them here. Our yield response that we had with uh, the 100 pounds of P205 as microessentials SC. Here I, I plot, you can see our, our upper, our yield responses were up to close to 30 bushels per acre. And the interesting aspect is if I plot what the soil test values were, in Illinois, I know it changes based on the state, and it's often surprising just from one political boundary to the next how much the soil test can, can vary. But uh, I show you here the soil test uh, critical value in Illinois is about 20 ppm. Each of these bars that have an asterisk would be a site that has a soil test value greater than 20 ppm, or in other words, if I were to go based on the soil test values alone, saying that I should not have applied any fertilizer because I was, should not have expected a response. That being said, I'd say there's probably a fair amount of responses that I'd see, I see up here that I'm glad that I put some fertility out. However, you know, how well can this be predicted based on the, you know, the actual soil test values? I can plot the actual soil test values here. Again, uh, 20 ppm is our threshold. I've kind of put an arrow in there. There's probably a buildup, you know, component in here where you can have a buildup and maintenance program. And on a percentage basis, we saw a 6% average response to all of our corn sites and about 11 bushel per acre yield response overall. The moral of this story would be is if I'm abandoning or, or even any kind of fertility management, if you're low, if you're below your, your thresholds, by all means, make sure you correct it and get it, uh, get your fertilizer applied. However, if we're pushing into higher yield levels, granted the average for this site was probably, you know, 225 to 240 bushels per acre, there might be opportunities where we're still seeing responses from your phosphate fertilizers or your premium phosphate fertilizers on soil test values greater than this. Prior to us indicating that you might need to be 40 ppm to 50 ppm, your critical thresholds as we bump up to the 250, 300 bushel per acre, et cetera. <laughs> Well, thank you, Tristan, for sharing your perspective on making the most of your nutrient applications in strip-till. And you can catch Tristan at the 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference coming up January 8th through the 11th in Indianapolis. He will be presenting a classroom session on phosphorus placement at the 2019 event, which will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions. Look for speaker announcements and conference updates at notillfarmer.com. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today 
by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Striptill Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on November 2nd for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series. And a reminder that you can still register to receive our Striptill Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Triston Buyer, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Striptill Farmer, I'm Jack Samlicka. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.